Well, if you have your Bibles, now would be a great time to pull those out, or if you have your electronic device, you can point that to the Wi-Fi network. We are in Acts chapter 13. If you notice the front of your core guide, um, two things. One, the, the title that I went with, took a long time to come up with a title for this week's message for whatever reason. Uh, the title I went with is Leaving Good for the Unknown. And the church in Antioch, Syrian Antioch, um, we know a little bit about. And they had something good going on there, something fantastic. What we know about the city of Antioch itself is it, is, it was the third largest city in all of the Roman Empire. And so this was... Uh, a place that had meaning and value. It was a cosmopolitan, uh, sophisticated kind of a town. It was uh, on um, the crossroads of major trade routes. It was not too far from the Mediterranean Sea, right up the Orontes River. And so they could um, be a kind of a key place in uh, the trafficking of goods and so forth off the Mediterranean Sea and then, of course, off the the continental travel. Uh, it was a multicultural town. Um, people from all over the place kind of just accumulated there because of the trade and the business and so forth. Uh, it was a. It was also known as kind of a pagan town. There was a lot of um, pluralism in the community. They practiced a lot of idolatry. Quite a few of the Greek. Um, deities were worshipped in the temples there. And what we know about the church in Antioch is that when Stephen was martyred, first Christian martyr, and the, the Christian movement had started back in Jerusalem, when, when Stephen was killed, these new believers, they were scattered. They were a little bit afraid, as you can imagine, and they took the gospel with them to wherever they went. And we're told earlier in the book of Acts that some of these believers ended up in Antioch. And not only did they um, reach out to the local Jewish community there to share the good news about Jesus, but the people in Antioch actually crossed that religious boundary and not only did they share Jesus with the, with the Jewish people there, they also talked to the Gentiles that they came in contact with. And so this church just kind of exploded. It bubbled up. There was, this was a, a good church to be a part of. And as we move through the book of Acts, the, the church in Jerusalem that formed is a, a very important church. But what they had going on in Antioch actually kind of went above and beyond what was going on in Jerusalem in that the church in Antioch was, was the launching church for all of Paul's missionary journeys. And they were a, they were a sending church. And, and why, was, why was what Antioch was doing such a good thing? Well, they were, they were really a gospel-centered community, a gospel-centered church. And so the things that come to mind when we talk about being gospel-centered, one, they actively shared their faith with other people. 
They were witnesses to their friends. They were witnesses to their neighbors. If you're a believer in Christ, that's part of what we are supposed to do, is to, wherever we go, be taking Jesus along with us and introducing him to the people that we come in contact with. Not only did they share their faith, but they also, they took it the step further. They didn't just get, they just didn't carry around the four spiritual laws pamphlet and get everybody to pray the little prayer at the end. They actually cared about the people and, and brought them into the community to show them what it looked like to follow Christ. We, in the church, we call that discipleship. They brought them alongside and they showed people what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And so they did those two things extremely well. And part of discipleship is to hold one another accountable, to instruct one another, to have fellowship and uh, share hospitality and all sorts of things. And we see as we get into the book of Acts that this was a worshiping community. It would be another component of being gospel-centered is they centered what they did around the worship of God and they fasted and they prayed and they waited on the Lord together. And you add to all of that the desire, the mercy, the compassion that welled up within them. They were a compassionate church who served other people. They were willing to give generously to those who had need around them. And as we get to where we're going to look at today in chapter 13, uh, the first three verses is the launching point of, of the message today. We're going to see how serious they were about being directed by the Holy Spirit. You know, if you, I hear a lot of people who say, well, I want to I hear a word from the Lord. Do you want to hear a word from the Lord? Yes. That, this would be yes. This would be no. I'm going to go with yes today, okay? Um, one of the ways that you can begin to tune in, to train your ear, uh, to train your heart, to train your mind to receiving words from the Lord is you grow in your knowledge of the Word of God. Because through the Word of God, you begin to uh, learn about and understand the character of God. And when you begin to understand the character of God, then, then you can kind of weigh that. Like, okay, I sense this. Does it match up with who I know God to be out of Scripture? Or maybe not. You begin to understand the things that God cares about, that he loves everybody and has a desire that everybody would come into a faith in him, that everybody would respond to Jesus, that there's no person that's so far outside of his grace that, that he can't find them. When we read the Bible, we get that picture that God is the one who initiates grace among us. And so if you want to hear from the Lord, you, you read the Scripture. You begin to understand what God is all about and you understand what He's looking for in all of us. And so let's, let's look at uh, chapter 13. The first three verses go like this. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So there's five guys. One of my other sermon titles was Five Guys, Prayers, and Goodbyes. You'll catch on in a minute. 
while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, that's pretty cool, isn't it? The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. In other words, say goodbye to them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Well, chapter 13 and 14 in the book of Acts outline what we know as Paul's first missionary journey. And he had been doing some other work, so maybe that's a little bit of a misnomer, but we, there are three distinct times that Paul is sent out from the church in Antioch. This would be the first one of them, and so we call it his first missionary journey. And it encompasses chapter 13 and 14. And so at the beginning here of 13, we find five guys in a room and they're praying. And that's the responsibility, even today, of every local church, especially local church leaders, to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, to discover who may the Holy Spirit be calling and gifting and preparing to go out into ministry. When you get to verse 2, that's just a stunning verse that says that while they were worshiping, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Now what we know of the church in Antioch is as it was getting going and as it was blossoming, word of that got back to the church in Jerusalem. And of course, when something big happens away from headquarters, we have to send people to go see if everything's legit. And so the church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas to go check it out. And Barnabas ended up staying there for quite some time. And he interacted and taught and was, became one of the leaders in that congregation. And part of his leadership, he's like, you know, I know, I know a guy who could really help this church grow, who understands their culture, who might know ways to reach people in the community, people who aren't believers yet. See, because Paul had been dismissed from Jerusalem. He was stirring up too much trouble there, and he disappeared back, and he, he went back to Tarsus. And he was there for probably a few years, just hanging out, doing his thing, learning. I'm sure he was preaching and, and honing his craft as, as a as a minister, and, and Barnabas remembers Saul. And he says, i got to go find him. So Barnabas leaves, and he goes, and he finds Saul in Tarsus, and he says, hey, i gotta, I got a spot for you to fill. I need your help over here in Antioch. So Saul comes down, and, and together they become two of the top leaders in, in this community among, among other people. And now the Holy Spirit has said, I want you to take two of your best assets, your best leaders, and I want you to release them. Well, if, if you are other leaders in the church or if you are part of the congregation, I can imagine that's a little bit unsettling, isn't it? I mean... Most of you have gone through a pastoral transition at some point, and when leaders leave, it, it just kind of um, shakes everything up a little bit. And so now the Holy Spirit says, I want Barnabas and I want Saul, and I want you to release them. 
because I have other work for them to do. I can imagine the church wanting to just hold on to them for just a little bit longer. No, you know, they're just two of our best guys and we love them so much. Can't we just send those two interns over there? Would that be, would that be okay? We, got, we have plenty of interns around here, Holy Spirit. Can, can we just tap two of them on the shoulders and, you know, we'll do our best to train them and we'll send, we'll send them out, but we want to keep Paul and we want to, and we want to keep Barnabas. Is that okay? The Holy, Holy Spirit was pretty clear. I want you to set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. I imagine... But it's not hard for us to imagine because I don't think human emotion has changed all that much in a couple thousand years. We want to, we want to hold on to things, things that um, we cherish, things that we value, what we would consider assets, whether they're people or resources. A lot of times our mentality is to, is to hang on tight. We are, we are immersed in a culture that takes on what we call the mindset of scarcity. In other words, we have accumulated all of this, and if we take any of it away, then we, we will have less. And so we can't, we, can't, we, don't, we can't imagine operating with anything less than we already have. And so to imagine removing part of it, is, that's just a tall order for us. So we operate oftentimes out of the mindset of scarcity. The mindset of scarcity prevents us from giving generously. Because if we take away some of what we have and give it to a church or to a, an organization or to people, then we have to figure out how to live on less. And sometimes we just don't want to make that sacrifice. And, and, and the, the other part of the mindset of scarcity is we start thinking that, I don't think I can, I don't think I can live on anything less. I don't think our church can operate with anything less, whether it's people or resources. And so I think that church maybe had some mindset of scarcity thoughts go through their minds. And that's okay. I think it's a natural part of being a human. But Jesus continually calls us to take on a mindset of abundance. And he reminds us that Everything that you have is mine in the first place, and it's kind of on loan to you, and so if, if I need it, it'll be okay. There's plenty of scriptures where it tells us that I, I know what you need, and I can be trusted to give you just enough. When Jesus taught disciples to pray, he never taught them to pray for accumulation. He didn't teach them to pray to fill the silos and fill the 401ks. He said, just pray for enough, for what? For today. Tomorrow will we'll worry enough about itself. What you need to focus on is today. And you need to trust that in all of God's providence, He knows what you need and He can be counted on to provide that. And when we learn to think with the mindset of abundance, then everything changes. Our sight changes. Our heart attitude changes. And we can, now, we can now step in and we can become like the people of Antioch were. They were people who gave abundantly, generously to people who had need all over the place. And so in this story, we learn that they erred on the side of taking on the mindset of abundance. So... 
I think one of the lessons as we just kind of work our way through this passage is to remember that, to know the difference between the mindset of scarcity and the mindset of abundance, and to know that the Holy Spirit calls us to live with open hands. Take on the mindset of abundance and live with open hands. Be willing to let loose, to set free, to give away whatever words you want to choose there to release into God's care what he asks you to do. And so they pray some more about it and they fast to ensure that this is a word of the Lord, which is a good thing to do, and they release them. Now, I'm a, I'm a geography guy, and I brought a little map here today. If we could throw that up on the screen. Um, I told you that we are launching into Paul's first missionary journey at this point. And um, so I'm, I'm always a guy who, who, when there's a place name and I have a moment, I always flip to the back of my Bible, and I love studying those maps. And I have books of maps all over the place, and I like to look at the topography. And in, in these cases, uh, when we know that Paul went on a missionary journey, you can trace the route. That gold dot is right there in Syrian Antioch, and we're going to see that they sail across to the island of Cyprus, and they land at Salamis, and then they make their way all the way across the, the island there to Paphos. And then after they have some ministry there, which we'll talk about in just a minute, then they, they set sail and they go to Perga. And then they make their way all the way up to another town called Antioch in uh, an area called Pisidia. So we will refer to it as Pisidian Antioch. There was a guy way back in the day whose dad's name was Antioch, and he went around and he started towns. He named all of them Antioch. So it's a little bit confusing when you read through Scripture sometimes because you keep reading about towns called Antioch, and so you need to put the, the, the other locations, so Syrian Antioch and Pisidian Antioch. And then in chapter 14, they move on from Antioch, and they go to Iconium uh, and Lystra and, and Derbe. And then they retrace their steps, and then they take a different sailing voyage back to Syrian Antioch. That's pretty cool to be able to trace that out, right? And look at it on a map. It looks nice and neat and planned out, doesn't it? Like, hey, that's a great business plan. When, when the Holy Spirit said, hey, I want you to release Barnabas and Saul to another uh, work that I have for them, it's easy for us to think when we look at the pages in the back of our Bible that have the maps and all those routes, it's easy to think that, oh, wow, they sat down and they carefully laid out a plan of where exactly they were going to go on their missionary journey. Because that's, that's how we would do it. We're, we're taught that to be successful in things that you come up with a good business plan. You have to have a strategic plan before you launch into anything. You have to know all of the steps that you're going to take. You have to know and count all of the costs that you're going to incur, and then you weigh the cost-benefit. Is going through all of this process worth it, considering how much it's going to cost time, uh, resources, and all sorts of things? Is, is it worth it for this outcome over here? You've heard this before. This is common business language in our culture. And unfortunately, it has bled over into church. And so lots of times, because we're trained out there, we, we want to have everything figured out before we launch into things. 
We want to have a map that looks like this, which is the completed product. But I tell you what, when, when they got the map, when they got the word from the Holy Spirit, the only thing on it was the gold dot. The rest of it was pretty vague. The Holy Spirit didn't say, okay, I want Barnabas, and I want Saul, and you're going to start on Antioch, and you're going to sail to Salamis. And I want you to spend some time on Cyprus. And after you've spent some time on Cyprus, then I'm, I want you to go back to the mainland, to this particular port. And then I want you to continue. That wasn't part of the Holy Spirit's call. I, I've told you about my own journey a couple of times. When, when the Lord asked me to consider being in ministry, this was way back in my teens, I said, okay. Tell me what that looks like. And I got a blank map. And kind of the instructions that went along with it, we're going to figure this one out along the way. There was no carefully documented route. There was no strategic plan. There was no budget and spreadsheet and all of those sorts of things that we like to follow to make sure that we know that we're staying on course. When you venture off with the Holy Spirit, it's kind of an open-ended journey. Like we have been coached to live with open hands in terms of our resources, I think the Holy Spirit prompts us to live by faith. Now, I don't want to dismiss strategic plans and budgets and things. Those are all very good things and helpful, and we need them. But sometimes maybe we tie too much to them. And when we don't have it all laid out in front of us, then we allow doubt to creep in. Like, I don't know if, I don't know if we have enough of a plan. I don't know if we should really take that step of faith. And so in the absence of plans, sometimes we don't do anything. The mindset of scarcity kicks back in. And it hinders us from moving forward with the Holy Spirit. We might shake our head, yes, that sounds great. We, we had this word from the Lord, but what does that look like? And if we can't articulate what it looks like and lay it out on a piece of paper or draw a nice little neat map like that, then maybe we just sit on our hands too long and we don't end up doing anything. And I think what God wants us to do here is that he wants us to be in constant communication with him. He wants us to be listening to him always for his voice of directions. He wants us to do things he wants us to do things with him. And too often I think that we want to do things for him. You know there's a difference. How many of you and and I'm going to be the first one to put my hand in the air. I I have prayed this prayer and so I'm not immune to this discussion. I've come up with plans. I have come up with things that I thought would be really neat and valuable to do for God. And then I've taken in my plan and I've said, God, will you bless this? You see what I did? It was all my idea. It was all my you know, work. It was all my drawing out the map. It was all my putting together the spreadsheet. And I'm thinking, man, I can do this for God. Isn't this going to be awesome? And I could talk a whole bunch of people into doing it with me. 
And then you file that plan with God and you say, hey, will you put your stamp of approval on this and make it work? That's not how God wants us to operate. That's not how God wants us to think. He wants us to do things in partnership, to do things with us. And so he calls us, hey, release Barnabas and Saul. I I have work for them to do. I'm going to be a little vague about that because I need you to stay in close communication and contact with me so that I can give you the instructions along the way. And so when, I think there's a healthy balance too, is when God gives us ideas and promptings, then yes, it is prudent to write them down, to figure out good ways of maybe how that would work in in a local church or in a community and things like that. But I think the plans start first with God. What do you want for me? What do you want for our church? And when we begin to hear him speak, maybe it's audibly, like the Holy Spirit said, or maybe it's a, a warming of your heart or an impression that you have in your mind, and then you can ask God, was that, was that from you? You can match it up against Scripture. Does this make sense with what I know to be the heart of God? And then we can begin to proceed forward in constant communication, and that's what God is calling us to do. He values the relationship over and above anything else. So we need to move on. The, the church blesses these two. They send them off. It's a church that gathers to encourage one another. It's a church that gathers to uh, remind each other of of what Jesus came to do, the hope that we have in Christ. They, They remind each other that in all the dark places on earth, Jesus came to shine his light into those places. And that's why we come together and gather. There's something that's deeply valuable about coming together. They also have the mindset of abundance. And so they're a sending church. They send people out to do the work of God in their own community, in their own homes, and around the world, as it turns out. So we get to verse uh, 4, and, and we're, on, we're now on the island of Cyprus. And every time that Paul goes out, he has a practice. When, when he lands in a new place, visits a new town... The the first thing he does, and he documents this in Romans 1, verse 16, he says the gospel, the the news of Jesus is first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And so he practices what he preaches. And so the first stop that he does is he goes into the Jewish synagogue and he preaches and shares words with them. He shares the love of Jesus, what Jesus came to do, how Jesus came to um, you know, be the fulfillment of the scriptures that they knew. And so they're on Cyprus, and they get to the other end in that little town uh, called Paphos that we saw on the map, and they meet two people that are rather interesting characters. They meet um, a Jewish sorcerer. Now, when we use the word sorcerer, uh, it could mean a couple things. Uh, It could mean that he dabbled in magic arts and things like that, uh, astrology, those sorts of things. Uh, It also could mean uh, that he was like a wise counselor, an advisor 
type person. And maybe his advice and, and counsel came from his astrology or whatever, but he, he's somebody who is in close contact with the second person we meet, and that's the proconsul, or we might say governor, of the whole island. Um, and his name was Sergius Paulus. Now, we learn in the text that he is an important guy. This is an, an, an intelligent man. He is... Uh, Proconsul or governor, that means he's a high-ranking official in the Roman Empire who probably answered directly to the Senate back in Rome. And Sergius, he becomes the very first convert on Paul's first missionary journey. And the interaction that Luke lays out for us in chapter 13 uh, kind of shows us a picture, a microcosm of what the rest of Paul's ministry is going to look like. Wherever Paul goes, he's going to have, uh, uh, on the one hand, he's going to have resistance. And on the other hand, he's going to have receptivity. And so in this person, the Jewish sorcerer, who we learn has uh, two names that he goes by, Bar-Jesus is his one, uh, the name that we know first, and then Alimus is what he's referred to after that. So Elimus is a picture of the resistance. And he's against what Paul has to say. He is blind. He's smart. He's wise, we're told. But he's blind. He can't see. And he opposes Paul. He opposes the message. And he tries to actively hinder, to stop Paul from sharing the message. And then on the other hand, the receptivity uh, hand we see Sergius Paulus, who is a Gentile. In this case, he's a leader, who is also, we're told, as wise, but we're also told that he has a hunger, he has a thirst. He can see, and he's intrigued, and he wants to learn more. And he comes to faith. Wherever Paul goes, he's going to have resistance, and he's going to have receptivity. And in this very first interaction on this missionary journey, Luke gives us a picture of what that's going to look like. So Elimus, he didn't want Sergius to um, accept the message of Paul. Maybe he was, um, maybe he feared losing his position. I mean, he was an attendant to the governor himself. He was one who was a counselor to the governor, gave him advice. He had probably had a nice corner office, cushy job, and Paul comes in and says, you know what, there's a higher truth source than what you've been following. His name is Jesus. That's a threat to Elimus, so he actively works against Paul's work. And so we get to this point, and Paul, Paul calls him out. I've had, I've had enough of you, Elimus, I... It, Paul had, I think, the Holy Spirit allowed him to see into Elimus's heart. And what he saw, he, he didn't like. And so we learn earlier um, in verse 4, um, verse 5 actually, that when they got to the island, they went around and they proclaimed the news about Jesus. So obviously Paul has preached on the island of Cyprus, but the first recorded message... <laughs> in his first missionary journey, is this. You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. You will never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord. 
Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. That's Paul's first message on his missionary journey. You're a child of the devil. As a side note, can you imagine Barnabas? The look on his face. Now, remember, Barnabas is the encourager. The nice guy. Good cop. (laughs) I I imagine in the debriefing, hey, Paul, um, we might want to lead with a little bit more grace. (laughs) That whole child of the devil thing, I'm not sure that that's the best way to start. But anyway, that's the first recorded message that we have. And um, see, Paul sensed in Elimus this deeply entrenched opposition to truth and goodness. It's not so much unlike what we look around and we see today. Paul reacts sharply and he declares God's judgment on him and he becomes blind for a time. Does that sound familiar? Does like Paul himself had this exact same experience where he went blind for a time. Maybe Paul in his heart of hearts really hopes that Elimus comes to faith too. Like, hey, you know what? This is going to happen and maybe, just maybe, this will be enough to reach out to your heart too. I was reminded of Isaiah 5.20. It says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. See, Elimus was mixing up those things. What was dark, what was wrong, what was evil, he was saying was light. What was bitter, he was saying is sweet. And so for a time, we're not told how long, Paul says this is going to happen. And so you're going to experience the darkness that darkness actually is. So you no longer call that light. You know, we live in a time right now where what God calls sin is not called sin. Have you noticed that? What we're taught, or what we're told, what we are sort of mandated to believe is that sin is just the expression of your own rights and freedoms. Which, on the one hand, that's true. You, you do have the freedom and the right to choose how you think, how you act, how you behave. I have no, I have no argument with people saying, I have the right to do this. Are you with me? People have that freedom of choice. I can choose to live my life this way or not. We all have have that choice. But just because it is a personal right or freedom that you think you have, does not mean that it changes the definition of what sin actually is. You see, you have the right and the the freedom to choose to live in certain ways, but that doesn't change the fact that it's flat-out sin. 
And I'm not going to spend the time this morning rehearsing all of the ways that that might look like. There's plenty of places in the Bible that outline Paul's famous for it in his letters to the churches. You should stay away from these evil practices. And he tells them, you have the right. But just because you have the right doesn't mean that it's good and healthy. And so in our country, when you speak out against people who are openly living in sin, well, that threatens people. It offends people. Who are you to tell me what I can and can't do? You know what? I'm not telling you what you can and can't do. I'm just telling that you what you are doing is sin. And I think, no, I know that there's a better way for you to live. There's a higher truth source that you can find. And it's the person of Jesus. And I'd love to introduce him to you. Now, in our country, when you feel threatened and when you are deeply offended, the way that you deal with this is that you try and pass legislation to define sin as not sin. And I just have to say that you, you can't ever legislate solutions to spiritual issues. And so we're going to just call sin what it is. And this is what Paul was about. He would go around and he would call people out of the sin that they were living in. And in this case, he saw deep into Elimus's heart and he called him out. He said, you can do better than that. In fact, you're a child of the devil. <laughs> and Barnabas said, So one obvious lesson in all of this, if we take a step back and we look at a big overarching picture, the obvious lesson is that as we go out and practice ministry, as we go out and share the news about Jesus, as we go out and freely extend the grace and mercy and forgiveness that Jesus came to give us as we tell people about that grace we're going to run into obstacles we're going to run into opposition we're going to run into people who don't like what we have to say but I don't think that there's any advance of the gospel without opposition and so it's okay I don't mind when there's resistance and opposition. I don't mind when there's critics because deep in my heart of hearts, while I don't like any bit of it, I don't like being criticized. I don't like you know, being punched in the face metaphorically. I, I don't like that. But deep in my heart of hearts, I know that man, we must be right on the edge of Satan's territory. And we are advancing the gospel and he doesn't like it. So I can find a little bit of joy in those moments because the Holy Spirit is out in front of us at work calling people to himself. I warn people who are stepping forward in baptism, or for baptism, to make that public profession of faith. I always issue the warning that you're going to take this step forward and it's a, it's a good step step to take. 
Jesus was baptized. He submitted himself to that. So I think it's a wonderful thing to participate in as a public profession to let other people know that, yeah, I'm, I'm all in. I died with Christ and I've been raised to new life. I've been washed. I've been cleansed of my sin. And I'm going to do my best to live into what that means for me. And when we do that in front of a congregation, the body of Christ, then we give each other permission to help us along the way, to call us out when maybe we go astray. But I always, baptism comes with a warning. And the warning is this, you will be tested soon. Satan doesn't like that you are taking this step, that you are publicly declaring faith in Christ. And so it's not, it would not surprise me at all if you left from this moment of baptism and go out back to your regular everyday life and encounter all sorts of resistance and opposition and problems. And you can pray through that. You know that you have a church family who loves you and is in support of you. And even maybe find a little bit of joy, even though it might be difficult. That God will help you through that. But the gospel is going forward. So we get to verses 13 and 14. And we're going to run out of time here in just a minute. So we're going to have another message next week, but also with the title, Leaving Good for the Unknown part two, uh, and then we'll get all the way through uh, Paul's mission, first missionary journey. But in verse 13 and 14, they move on from, from this encounter with Elimus and Sergius Paulus. Sergius Paulus hears the message of the Lord, the grace and forgiveness that is there for him for everyone. And he believes. He comes to faith. And they continue on. And they travel from Cyprus and, and they, they sail back. If you remember that map, they, they sail back to the mainland and they, they land at the city of Perga, which is a port town. And they make their way north. And how did they decide to go to this place? I don't know. We're not told. My, my guess is that the Holy Spirit was giving them directions. GPS, God's positioning system. And so they're in tune with that, and they have the turn-by-turn -turn directions. I wonder what the voice on the GPS sounds like. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it could be Morgan Freeman. That's a, that's a great answer right there. And so they're tuning into the Holy Spirit in each moment for further directions. But it's also interesting, and maybe this plays into it a little bit. Scholars believe that Sergius Paulus, proconsul on Cyprus, scholars believe that his hometown was in Antioch, Pisidian Antioch. Now, if you had just discovered something new and life-changing and transforming like this, don't you want to share that with people? And can't you imagine that Sergius says, hey, where are you guys going next? Well, I don't know. We're just going to leave here and sail off and listen to the Holy Spirit. And, 
And Sergius probably is saying, hey, will you go to my hometown? Will you take this news? Will you take this forgiveness and grace and freedom in Christ? Will you go share that with my family up in Antioch? I'll even, I'm a governor here. I, if I write a letter, that will mean something to those people. I'll write you a letter of introduction. Now, isn't this how life works? And sometimes the Holy Spirit works through conversations. Like something so good happens to you. You find the miracle diet and you melt away and everybody's like, what happened? And, and you're like, hey, you need to go talk to so-and-so and they'll show you the plan and how to do the same thing. Or if you are worrying about finances and setting up, you know... Um, you know, 401ks and all sorts of things like that, and you're just struggling, and somebody here is, you know, says, hey, I just had this great experience with so-and-so. You send, we send each other along the way. It was a couple years ago I told you I sent a whole bunch of you to my favorite chocolate shop in Leavenworth, and many of you went and found it. But that's, this is how life works, is we have one interaction and something exciting. We learn something, and we're sent on to the next one. And we have a uh, conversation, a meaningful experience, and we're, we're sent on. And so I think the Holy Spirit is directing them. They're in tune with Him and listening. And they had, they had the privilege of being present and helping lead Sergius Paulus to the Lord. And he says, hey, I want you to go, I want you to go talk to my family. Now the journey there, it's kind of rigorous. The city in Antioch was up on a plain. It required, from sea level, it required hiking up mountains over 3,000 feet through rocky, craggy, just nasty terrain. The mountains are in the way from the sea, uh, between the sea and, and, and Antioch. And it's true when we're following God's plans, there's going to be mountains. There's going to be difficult terrain that we have to go over, dangers and discouragements. But through all those setbacks, all of those critics, all those people who try and steal your joy, you know that there's no burden or obstacle that is too heavy for Jesus to carry. And he's the one who walks step by step with you through all of it. So when the weight of everything that you think you're carrying in the journey ahead of you, when, it, when you stagger, remember you don't have to carry it all by yourself. But Jesus is there. And there's no load that's too heavy for him. Because if he calls you to something or away from something, he's going to help you carry the load. And he will give you what you need to persevere and carry on. We don't, we don't have to bear our burdens or face our trials or endure our suffering alone. We have the Holy Spirit of God who goes with us. Giving us point-by-point point directions along the way, provided that we remain in contact with him. So I'm going to leave off there. We're going to have the worship team come back. And next week when we gather, uh, I want to show you what happens in Pisidian Antioch 
when Paul arrives. 